Hello, and welcome to the Amazon Women on the Moon segment by segment podcast. I am the host of this particular episode. My name is Joel Bacher. Uh, my guest today, who is the co-host of the Judging Book Covers podcast, is Ollie Brady. Ollie, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Joel. Uh, I, just for people listening, myself and Joel have never met until about five minutes ago, so it's a fantastic experience. Yeah, this is this is a, a crash course getting to know you, discussing a really weird movie. So this this uh, should this conversation should branch out in some interesting directions. But the uh, the segment that we are covering is uh, this time around is Critics Corner, which was directed by Joe Dante. Uh, it it stars. Let me pull up my uh, doc where I actually bothered to write this stuff down. Archie Hahn as Harvey Pitnick, Belinda Belaski as Bernice Pitnick, and Al Lohman and Roger Barkley as Frankel and Herbert, the uh, the film critics. Which, gee, I wonder whose names those are referencing. <laughs> Um, I'm glad you did all of that research. Um, so Joe Dante, I'm, I'm assuming that's the same Joe Dante who directed Gremlins. That is correct. Yes. Uh, and the writing credits for this one, I'm looking at IMDb. I'm seeing Michael Berry and Jim Mulholland written as the only writing credits. I believe there are more writers for this. So I'm going to scroll down and see if I can find uh, the full list of writers for this uh, for this entire film. But uh, yes, this is the same Joe Dante that directed Gremlins amongst many other films. Um, I was pleased the two segments that I will be discussing are this one and Roast Your Loved Ones, which uh, were both directed by Dante, who of the various filmmakers involved in this project is easily my favorite. Um, I was kind of uh, mildly astonished looking over his uh his imdb database just how many of his movies i've seen and how much they kind of papered my youth uh as ollie mentioned we've just met so i'm not entirely certain how old ollie is but uh, i grew up in the 80s and 90s and saw an enormous number of joe dante films growing up not really being aware that they were all by the same director uh gremlins gremlins 2 inner space uh, I believe he directed Explorers. I'm looking it up to see if that is the case. I, I think he did, yeah. Uh, the Burbs. So yeah, there's uh, an enormous number of, of Joe Dante films that are kind of built into my subconscious, which I did not fully realize prior to this project. But um, I should probably stop babbling and let Ollie talk a little bit about... So we were just discussing beforehand, neither of us had seen this film prior to this project. No, I had never seen it. Uh, I didn't realize Joe Dante had any input at all. Um, I, <laughs> I basically, Joel uh, posted in a group that we're in. He was like, "Does anyone want to talk about this movie?" And I went, "Okay, why not?" And then when I found out it was segments, I thought it'd be a good idea to not watch any of the other segments, not do any research on the movie whatsoever, and just watch the two segments. So that's what I've done. So I'm coming in, when I say I'm coming in completely blind. This is completely blind. I think I might have heard the name of the movie once, and that was because I was recording with um, the producer of this podcast, uh, Darren Husted, and he had said, I'm going to do something with Amazon Women on the Moon. And I went, all right, if that ever happens, I'm sure I'll jump on at some stage. Uh, So here I am. As for my age, I'm 40, so I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And so many of those movies that are Joe Dante movies are things that I watched and enjoyed and like genuinely have affection for. So I'm a little bit shocked to find out he directed these two pieces. 
uh, in particular the first one. The second one, which we'll talk about later on, feels more Dante-esque. This one didn't really have that feeling to me. I would agree with that, actually, yeah. The, the, um, the one aspect that feels Dante-ish in this, in this segment, Critics' Corner, is that it is black comedy. And that is his, his area of, to some degree, his area of expertise. There's an element of black comedy in virtually all of his work. Um, And some of the films that he directed that I did not see until I was much older, like the howling uh, lead into, you know, lean into the black comedy aspects a great deal more. But in terms of like uh, the kind of anarchic humor of his other work or the horror aspects or the fantastic aspects other than the central premise being two critics somehow being able to see a man's entire life and just mercilessly tear him to shreds uh, without him ever having come in contact with them in any way, shape or form, which is a fantastic conceit. There is not a great deal that is particularly Dante ish in the visual style or anything in this, this segment. Yeah. it. So I think you set it up well, what the segment is. So, Effectively, a guy comes home from work, sits down to watch some TV, and what's on TV is a parody of Siskel and Ebert, and they're talking about uh, different movies, and they're giving glowing reviews to Swedish art house pieces, and both of them are, you know, less than thrilled about something that's approximating Animal House, I'm assuming. <laughs> the title of which is Frat Slobs, which got a, a genuine laugh out of me. That, that got a laugh out of me as well. Uh, now, Jonathan and I did split, however, on the newest teenage romp called Frat Slobs. Uh, Jonathan, I think, thought to, to be a, a light, frothy souffle sizzling with youthful energy. That I did. On the other hand, I thought it was pond scum. And I'm assuming, and also because Landis was one of the directors on this entire uh, entire endeavor, it, it, it's it's a nice little in joke, but then after that, it I don't think there are any jokes. It's just... <laughs> it, it it is just kind of a merciless takedown of this of this dude who. So the the actor playing and I I did as I was babbling away I did look up there are only two credited writers on this film which is mildly surprising to me I kind of figured with a sketch film there would be a lot of different writers working on different sketches, but the only credited writers are Michael Berry and Jim Mulholland who uh, do not have their own Wikipedia pages, which I don't know if that indicates uh, that their careers are perhaps not super, were rather short lived or if maybe they, you know, not everybody has a Wikipedia page. Yeah. This particular sketch was one of the only ones from this film. And I, I, I took part in episode zero of this podcast and talked a little bit about my my awareness of it which was seeing the video cassette case many 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 times over going to different video rental stores and always yeah. recognizing the case because it is a distinctive poster image of the invisible man having a large number of things exploding out of his head um, but otherwise being fairly unaware of it except in that like any good um like any good movie nerd uh, growing up in the 80s and 90s, I regularly consulted Roger Ebert's uh, gigantic compendiums of film reviews. Yeah. 
and I remember his movies to watch before X happens. Exactly. Yeah. Which I, at this point X has happened. I, I'm pretty sure. But, <laughs> um, and the, uh, I remember his review of this film, which was less than glowing. Um, but the only sketch he's one of the only sketches he singled out as being particularly funny or particularly inventive was this one, uh, which I'm, there might be a little egotism involved there since it's a Siskel and Ebert parody, but he did mention that he liked that the play on the idea was rather than the typical joke about film critics, which is them like deciding, you know, getting into such an argument that they end up coming to fisticuffs that they just team up to mercilessly dress down this hapless schmo watching the show, which is, which is an inventive conceit to be sure compared to the, the, as he said, the more typical joke about critics, which is, you know, them getting into an argument and ending up beating the crap out of each other. No, I, I'd agree that this is very inventive. I, I didn't know anything about it going in. So when I sat down to watch it and we get Joe Schmo, his he, he comes in, so Harvey, and he meets his wife, he's, and it looks jaded, he sits down. And it's an interesting idea that then the two people on TV that he's giving out about would then suddenly turn around and be able to, you know, break down his life segment by segment, except they only show one clip of his life and it might as well have been the same thing. And he's getting increasingly angry and upset about stuff they're seeing about him. And it's not particularly damning. Like you, you wasted your potential. You're in a loveless marriage. You're sitting in front of the TV every single day. Okay, I'm I'm not exactly laughing my tiny little butt off. Also, just for the record, it's not a tiny butt. Um, but I'm, I'm not laughing it off. So for him to say that this is the only funny segment or segment that he had praise for doesn't really sell me on the rest of the movie. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. And I, this was much more of a kind of mild amusement at the at the inventiveness of the premise. And there are a couple of little lines here and there that I got, got chuckles out of the, the, for me, the genuine funniest moment in the sketch is when they're showing the clip of his life, he arrives home. I think his briefcase gets caught in his coat or on his tie or something. He just kind of rips it off. He says to his dog who you do not see high scraps and there's an audio of a dog growling. Oh, hi, Scraps. <laughs> and you don't see the dog at all. You just hear, Err. and just the idea that this guy's dog hates him, but to a degree where it's like, it's not like an aggressive hate. It's just like a sitting in the corner, simmering over how much he hates this guy and growling at him. And you, that you never see the dog, that it's entirely an audio gag that, that got a genuine, a genuine ha out of me watching this, the both times that I've watched it for this, this podcast and well, well the, I thought the, oh sorry go ahead. I was just gonna say the, the, the part that got a chuckle out of me is his wife seems to be more into him than he is to her 100% yes yeah and it, I, I was sitting to myself going so this is obviously 1987 something like this when it was recorded mm-hmm. or made and th- that's like prototypical slobby sitcom guy has much more attractive wife 
who is definitely very much into him. And But this guy seems like he doesn't care. She's coming over to give him a little kiss at the end of his day, and he's, oh, you got potato on your face and wipes Wipe it off. potato, and yeah. Walks <laughs> off. And I was there thinking to myself, uh, now, if this wasn't, you know, at the time, like if this was 2021 and it was made now, it would definitely have been an attack on that kind of trope. But as I was watching this, I was thinking, maybe they just actually thought this was acceptable back then. This is, this is every, every man had a wife who was two steps above him on the, uh, on the attractiveness skills. That's fine. That's a good, I, I hadn't thought of that as a comment on the uh, overly attractive sitcom wife with schlub husband trope. But that, I mean, you, you, even now in an age where we have, you know, where are in or perhaps have recently passed the golden age of television and, you know, there's a remarkable amount of high quality stuff available. There's still an alarming number of really mid tier crappy sitcoms where this happens all the time. It's, you know, some guy who looks like Kevin James who, um, and you know, nothing against big guys. I'm a big guy myself, but who will have some like, you know, a supermodel attractive wife and that's just kind of an accepted accepted thing within the the realm of this this genre i in this sketch i yeah i noticed that and also the bit where one of the critics refers to them as being trapped in a loveless marriage and she like immediately goes to say something like oh well that's not true or to 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 change that. And he says, how do they know that before she can say anything? And she she's... is so, she is so sad. Like her response, like I think she does a fantastic performance in this because she really sells me on. She's hurt by Harvey's response. She is that it is a, it is a great response. And then the kind of, she also kind of gives him a look like she's starting to, she's listening more to these criticisms. Like, yeah, this guy really is not all that great. Is he like, it's, it's really starting to, to come home to her. Like, yeah, I, I have gotten saddled with a, a really uninspiring partner. Uh, I've looked up these two writers, Jim Mulholland and Michael Berry, uh, as, as we've been talking, and I see that they, perhaps fittingly, given that we were discussing sitcoms, they primarily worked in television and yeah. uh, primarily worked in, it looks like, uh, variety shows and talk shows. We've got... A lot of work on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. We've got a lot of work on David Letterman's show. Uh, we've got work doing um, Dean Martin's Celebrity Roasts, which I think will play in in the next bit that we're talking about, the Roast Your Loved yeah, Ones. Absolutely, yeah. Segment. Uh, writing. For I thought you were going to say they show. wrote Home Improvement. <laughs> which would be which would be fitting um they have writing credits on the movie bad boys with martin lawrence and will smith which is very much <laughs> a left turn from this it it makes me wonder i i'm trying to remember where i heard this recently i may have been on the blank check podcast but they were saying that bad boys was originally written and this may have been a joke i would need to actually look this up but it was originally written with i think dana carvey and john lovitz in mind which is a very different film. And uh, perhaps they were involved in that draft and then ended up continuing to have writing credits, even though it changed dramatically once Will Smith and Martin Lawrence were involved. Yeah. There's a couple of things about that. Number one is I'm delighted to find out you're a blankie. Um, Woohoo. Blanket. Thank it. Um, <laughs> so uh, a fantastic podcast. Not that this isn't a fantastic podcast, but, but it's also a very good podcast. Um but yeah, I think I remember them talking about that as well. And 
I don't, I, there must have been some, they must have had the early writing credits on the Dana Carvey parts because I can't see them writing the Will Smith parts in this movie or in Bad Boys. No, yeah, it seems like, um, it, it seems like probably they, their credits linger from an earlier draft of the script. Although, I mean, that's purely speculation on my part. Speculation, but, yeah. Um, it is, uh, so immensely different from the uh the this film that that and there are other writing credits that it does suggest that so, something something was changed quite dramatically from their draft but but again who knows um but it so is very we were, very uh, oh sorry when i'm just going to say it's very fitting that their background is in television because this is such a tv centric tv tv related film Oh, it definitely is, and that's why I was I was going to ask about um about you you were saying you grew up. I'm assuming you grew up in the states. Yes, and much like that other podcast we mentioned, I didn't. I grew up on mm-hmm. this side of the pond, and we didn't have Siskel and Ebert. So, is this a good approximation of what Siskel and Ebert were like? These guys are a lot stuffier than Siskel and Ebert actually are. Uh, there was much more of a. Uh, kind of a chummy back and forth with Siskel and Ebert that occasionally would, would launch into actually kind of tearing into each other a little bit when they severely disagreed. Uh, but these guys seem, uh, the, the bit that they're doing, they seem much snootier than, than Siskel and Ebert ever came off to me anyway. Siskel and Ebert always seemed a little more, um, a little more easygoing and a little funnier and a little more, uh, um, uh, in in gay in engaging to an audience than than the, the these guys seem like the PBS equivalent of of <laughs> Siskel and Ebert. Nothing against PBS, but definitely definitely aimed at a a different audience. And why this guy would be watching them in the first place when this guy is is depicted as being an an ultra slob who's just kind of disinterested in life. Why he would be watching Critics Corner in the first place, except perhaps that you know it happened to be on and he didn't really care what was on television is uh is is mildly bewildering that he would even be watching this show the the gags of the movies that they initially review which are uh, uh, the previously mentioned frat slobs and then the ingmar bergman parody winter of my despondency which i really liked both of those titles and and to be fair would probably watch both of those films mark and i both gave a big thumbs up to the new swedish film directed by uh Olaf Svensson. Olaf Svensson called uh, The Winter of My Despondency. Haunting abstract symbolism. Already crap. I I think I'd probably watch Winter of My Despondency first. Um, Before Frat Slobs, yeah. Yeah, um, but mostly then just so I could tell people I'd watched it. So it's just to, to mark it off your list of, of... Well, not even to mark it off my list. Just that uh, if I met somebody, I was like, oh yeah, uh, I watched this interesting movie, Winter of My Despondency, last week. It's um, It really touched me. Really, really got me in places I didn't even know I had. Even though I might have been bored to tears by it. But I'm going to tell people I love it. I feel like you could probably tell a lot of people that you had seen Winter of My Despondency and no one would call you <laughs> on it being a fake movie. Everyone would just kind of play along with like, oh, yeah, that was really intense. It's a hidden Igmar Bergman. A yeah. classic. Most people don't know, but this this up at Spring. What's the, what's the name? The movie he's got that has Spring in its title. Oh, The Virgin Spring. Uh, the Virgin Spring. So it, it's like a, a sequel to The Virgin Spring. And then people, oh, wow, this is interesting. 
yeah, you could probably get a long con going with that if you if you so chose. But yeah, I, mean, I, I did see a, an awesome Onion article last week, which was titled "Guy Lies About Movie or Seeing Movie Instantly Starts to Backtrack." <laughs> <laughs> been, I, you know what? I've been there. I've or, been there too. <laughs> or I've genuinely forgotten if I've seen a film. Like someone will say, "Oh, have you seen something?" And I'll be like, "Yeah, I think I saw that." And the more they talk about it, I'm like, "I've never seen that movie. I don't even know what they're talking about." And then once you've said you've seen it, it's so hard not to, like, it's so hard to actually go, no, no, I've never, no, I've never seen that actually. Uh, that's happened to me recently with, um, of all movies, uh, Home Alone. And oh, so I have, you've, you've never, never seen, seen Home Alone? It. You're not I've missing much. I've never seen much. Home Alone. And I think I've just, it by osmosis or cultural osmosis, I'm fairly certain I've seen 95% of that movie but only true seeing little clips here and there or sure. references and other things. But I mean, I've definitely never sat down to watch it. I thought we had seen it as kids and I mentioned it to one of my brothers. And he was like, no, we weren't allowed to watch that movie and it was never put on. And I mean, I must've watched it at some other point, no memory of it, put it on. And I was like, Oh, this is actually significantly more enjoyable than I thought it was going to be. Oh, so you liked it. Okay. That's, that's, that's good. I, a lot of those films are kind of, if you go back to something from the, the late eighties, early nineties, it's this kind of nostalgia buster moment of like, wow, that was really what everybody was into at that time. Huh? <laughs> you mean the Goonies? Yeah. Yeah. There, and there, there's, there's a few others, although I would probably spark arguments with people if I were to, to, to delve into it too deeply, but there are, there are definitely some sacred cows from that era that do not hold up well. The two um, performers that are playing Frankel and Herbert in this bit, I, I looked these guys up um, after watching this segment because uh, weirdly in the credits, they are, they are credited only by their last names. They are credited as Loman and Barkley. And oh. so I looked them up and that is because they were evidently a radio duo in Los Angeles. Um, uh, according to Wikipedia, which as we all know is an unimpeachable source that is never wrong. It's flawless. Um, absolutely flawless. They were a morning drive radio show in Los Angeles through most of the seventies and early eighties, the Loman and Barkley show. Their full names were Al Loman and Roger Barkley. And so they had this um, radio drive time talk comedy show that evidently was fairly well known uh, within the Los Angeles area. I I grew up in the Midwest. Um, I'm in California now, but had never heard of these guys. Had no idea that this was this was a well known thing. But presumably, that's why they were hired in this film. That they were a known comedy duo um, within the the California Los Angeles area. Do do you imagine they were the wacky sound type guys or I'm getting that impression. It says on Wikipedia that they had a lot of recurring character bits that they oh. would do. So I'm I'm hearing in my head like the air horn sounds and the the soundboard with like the sad trombone music and stuff. Um That's exactly what I'm picturing in my head. Oh my god, can you believe he said that? <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> yeah. That's kind of what I'm getting. I could be being very unfair to these guys. Maybe they were hilarious. Um, the the bit in the Wikipedia article that I found absolutely fascinating was uh, shortly after the making of this film, although I don't think that it had anything to do with each other, 
Uh, it says in 1986, Roger Barkley suddenly and unexpectedly quit the duo after 22 years, much to Loman's shock and surprise. And it adds uh, later in the the Wikipedia article that they did not speak for the rest of their. Yes, Loman and Barkley never spoke again after that. Oh wow! Which is that is a hardcore. I am done with this. I am done with you. See you guys. I'm going home. Kind of a pro like that is an, an extremely hard, whatever happened between those two guys, whatever it may be, it, that is an impressive degree to hold a grudge to literally never speak to someone again. I feel like we should speculate. And since it was in the mid nineties, I can only assume that one of them was involved with Bill Clinton in some way, possibly was in the room when Monica Lewinsky thing went down and then didn't like didn't testify in court or something. So I'm going to see if that's either that or they were an accessory to OJ Simpson. They're the only two things I remember from the nineties in America. So that, that has to be it. You know, arrow wise, OJ Simpson's probably closer. So yeah, maybe one of these guys was the other driver in the, um, in the white <laughs> Ford Bronco. And the, the second one was just like, I can't, I can't get by with you being an accessory. Maybe they were actually his gloves that OJ was trying on. <laughs> I mean, speaking of speaking of dark comedy, we're we're getting we're getting into some gruesome territory, but we've we've gone too far, I believe. I believe it. The, an additional bit in this Wikipedia article, and again, Wikipedia, as always, flawless and unimpeachable. Mm-hmm. Um, Barkley is quoted as unimpeachable, saying, just like Bill Clinton, just like Bill Clinton. Yeah, they tried. It says, although Loman and Barkley's morning KFI show is mostly talk and skits, an occasional tune was played. Which interesting turn of phrase there. Uh, probably to give the guys a restroom break. I, I feel like citation needed is should be added to this Wikipedia article. Uh, in a later Los Angeles Times article regarding his sudden exit from KFI, Barkley was quoted as saying he warned their program director that the constant playing of the same Eagles songs over and over was very aggravating to him. He said if he heard Hotel California one more time, he might just get up and walk out one day. Joe, Wikipedia just superseded my joke because I was about to say nine, 900% certain that it was all either Eagle songs or Sublime. And this is pre-Sublime. So yeah, it would have happened. So it had to be the Eagles. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, we've, we, you got, you got jokes, joke jacked by, by Wikipedia. And I'm going to be 100% honest with you. If, I work somewhere that constantly played Hotel California. I would be walking out as well. I am 100% on his side with this. I, that well, is a, a step There's a problem the with that, Joel, is you can check out anytime you want. But you can never leave, yeah. <laughs> you can never leave. That's true. That's true. And he stabbed it with his steely knives, but he just could not kill the beast. <laughs> what a terrible song. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it is honestly, I, I live in California and it is unescapable. You you will hear that in the supermarket. You will hear that in... I mean, right now it's all Christmas music everywhere, which is its own kind of hell. But... Yeah. Well, I'm living in Ireland, so you cannot... It's kind of getting a little bit better now, but you couldn't turn the corner or step into a shop without hearing you 2 for the longest time. And, I mean, they're not bad. They're okay, but you don't need to hear them every single place you go. That that almost feels like too on brand. Like it, it, it seems like I would think of anywhere people there would be particularly sick of you two. 
it's because we're attracting the tourists. I see. So we want them to think that we're all super proud of everything that ever happened that's Irish. Like people, people just come to me, and I'm not sure if you're into UFC or anything. Be like, what do you think of that Conor McGregor? Uh, I said, saying, I think he's a fool. I have no interest <laughs> in him whatsoever. <laughs> but oh, but he ain't proud. Like he's so good at, 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 at you know kickboxing or whatever. Like, I couldn't care less. Like just because he's Irish, I'm supposed to like support this guy. But yeah. I said, it's one of those things, sometimes you just have to uh, make sure you get all the money you can when, when the tourists are over here. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. And um, that, to me, that is so indicative of the, like, everyone from a place, the, the very American-centric idea of, like, oh, everyone from this other place must just confirm to what my stereotypes of that place are. Because no one would ever presume, like, just because someone's from America, I must be really into that person and support everything they do because they're also American. It's like, no, 90% of the stuff that comes from here, I want nothing to do with and no association with. <laughs> it's, it's, it is the same with, with Irish stuff and myself. Although, uh, there was the first time I was in the States, I was in New York and I was staying in the Sheraton Hotel because apparently every Irish person thinks that's the place to go. And I went there and I went downstairs. I was sitting at the bar with my girlfriend at the time. And we were chatting to the barman and he picked out the accent straight away. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it, I'm not doing much of a job to hide this. And he said, oh, we had an Irish guy in here last week. Do you know him? <laughs> right. And I was about to start off, like genuinely about to kick off on, no, there's 4 million of us. I don't know all 4 million people. And he said, his name is Patrick. He's got a scar over his left eye, glasses. Uh, I think his girlfriend was there with him, uh, Joanne, Joanne. And I was like, was his name Patrick Hamilton? And the barman went, yes, 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 Patrick Hamilton. And I was like going, I well do know that guy. <laughs> like of all the people in the world. So Paddy, Paddy wasn't even staying in the Sheraton. He was just going past and it's just in the right spot. Like it's surrounded by Irish bars and stuff. And he just went in for a drink and then was happy to be talking to this barman. And I was sitting there thinking... This guy now thinks legitimately that all Irish people know each other at this stage. That must have been so frustrating to actually fit into a stereotype. To actually yeah. be like, yeah, I am now one of these people where the, he's going to use me as his example. of Like, yep, they all know each other. <laughs> that's that's what I'm, Oh, man, I'm living down to the stereotype. That's the problem. Yes, I'm very... Whenever I'm... I'm and it's been a very, very long time since I have... I have traveled in, in anywhere outside of the States, but whenever I'm, I'm in a foreign country, I'm very conscious of like the stereotypes of what Americans are like when they travel. So I try not to be loud. I try, I try to take up as little space as possible. I never refer to anything as quaint. I, I, I'm never sending food back at the restaurant. Like I, I know what the stereotypes are and I do my absolute utmost to avoid falling into any of them. Although there are certainly times that it is, I'm sure that I have walked and stepped on that rake of like, yep, there's an American. Uh, Quaint is such a great word because nobody, nobody over here would ever say it. But you definitely do hear it from Americans. Oh, yeah. oh, it's such a quaint little town. And you're you're in there. This is the fourth biggest city in Ireland. Um, <laughs> or what a quaint castle. It's like, it's a castle. It, it's a, it's one, one of the real ones. People actually lived here and did stuff. I do love with castles, though, is 
um, the first time tourists come over, and I, I have a lot of American friends, mostly through podcasting actually, but a lot of them have come over to visit over the years. And the first time you take them to a castle, they genuinely like get excited about it. They're like, oh, wow, this is a castle. And then as an Irish person, you're like, yeah, but if I drive 10 miles that way, I'll find another one. Right. <laughs> They're literally dotted everywhere. And like, it's bad here. It must be intensely annoying to Scottish people because there's literally a castle on every hill in that country <laughs> or some sort of fort or some sort of ruins. And uh, like they'll have people going around Edinburgh going, what a beautiful castle. And then people in Edinburgh are thinking, yeah, but there's 10 even more beautiful ones five minutes drive away. I just go out the road there. Uh, it's, but I suppose at the same time, anytime Ireland's a very, very flat country. So anytime I'm in the States, I'm genuinely shocked that you guys aren't always amazed by the mountains that are everywhere. <laughs> I, and I grew up in a very flat part of the States, too. I grew up in Michigan, which is an extremely flat place. So I am still kind of living in California. I am still kind of like, wow, look at that hill. Look at that mountain. And people are like, what's the big deal? So just the re- the regional differences here, are can, can one can fall into those stereotypes as well. What is Michigan famous for other than Detroit? Um, we, we got a lot of lakes. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. Lake. Lake Michigan. Um, we're the, yeah, we're the one that looks like a mitten. That's I think that's the one that, that people will, if you're looking for an association with Michigan, it's like, yeah, it's the one that kind of looks like a hand that's up in the northern part of the country. The only thing that's popping into my head about Michigan, other than random University of Michigan State, are you guys semi-famous for apples? Because mm. I know Washington's the apple state, but for some reason I have associated Michigan with apples. I can say that there was an apple orchard uh, a couple of towns over from where I grew up. Whether we're particularly famous for apples, that I don't know. But I, I can confirm that there are apple orchards in Michigan. Yes, that's enough for me. Okay. We're the apple place now. <laughs> so we've gotten pretty far off the t- topic of Amazon. Yeah, the we're talking about apples in Michigan. Which uh, perhaps indicates that we have said much that there is to say about this particular segment. Um, I, I did want to mention before we go uh, too much, uh, before we sign off, that the two principal actors in this segment, uh, Archie Hahn as Harvey Pitnick and Belinda Belaski as Bernice Pitnick, who who you singled out for her performance. And she is she is very funny in this, and she's also very funny in the, the Roast Your Loved Ones Yes. sketch, which is the, the next sketch featuring these two characters. Now, we have a new feature we'd like to introduce on Critics Corner. We hope you'll enjoy. We call it Real Life Reviews, in which we critique the life of an average person just like you. Uh, Jonathan, uh, we'll begin with a review of the life of Harvey Putnick. No, Pitnick. Pitnick Shh. of Skokie, Indiana. Uh, Illinois. Illinois. Harvey Pitnick. Bernice. Skokie, Illinois. Bernice, come here. They're talking about me on the television. Um, sort of featuring <laughs> Harvey Pitnick. He doesn't really do much. Um, that these two are kind of Joe Dante regulars, which uh, was another thing I didn't realize until I didn't really realize how much he works with the same actors repeatedly. Um, that he's kind of got like his stock company of players who show up in a bunch of his different films. But uh, these two actors, if I can. Uh, actually get internet movie database to cooperate with me have (laughs) have appeared in a large number of his films usually in fairly small roles but as it it is almost like he's got his company of players who 
who show up again there. Uh, I know she is in Gremlins. Now, Harvey Pitnick would seem to have all the ingredients for a successful life. You think so? So why does he fail so miserably? I don't know. Well, I think the problem is with Harvey himself. The hell is this? You know, you're right. It is Harvey. Very good, Jonathan. It is Harvey. So we're supposed to care about this Harvey Pitnick? (laughs) Why? I mean, it takes him 30 years to develop any character at all. And by the time he does, who cares? They're crucifying me. It's hardly worth the wait. He didn't like Gandhi either. Let me show you. Here's a scene from last year as Harvey is coming home from work. But yeah, the actor Archie Hahn, uh, who plays Harvey, uh, has had a long career. He appears to still be working um, and has appeared in uh, Gremlins 2, The New Batch, uh, Amazon Woman of the Moon, Inner Space... This is Spinal Tap, which is not a Dante film, but I was, I'm was i kind of surprised to see that he was in. I certainly don't remember him. Must be a fairly small role. Um, was on the Bob Newhart show. I seem to recall... I When I was looking over this earlier, I thought he was in more of Dante Dante's, Dante's films. And now, of course, as I'm attempting to... When you're searching, I can tell you where I know him from. Go for it. He was a frequent guest on the British version of Whose Line Is It Anyway? Was he really? Um, he was. And he was he was good. Like he was no Ryan Styles. He was no Colin sure. Murphy, who were also, you know, very in fact, I'm fairly certain Ryan Styles was not just about every episode. And Colin Mockery was on most of them. Um but yeah, they would they would often have the those two guys, um, Clive Anderson would be the host, and then they'd have one American and one British guest male comedian and one you know one british and one american female comedian as well to join in and they were just like fantastic just i know the american version is beloved but if you've never watched the british version of who's nice in anyway it's pretty damn fantastic i remember back before there was an american version i remember on on comedy central here in the states they would play the the old british version with um uh, Clive, uh, Clive Anderson. Yeah. Clive Anderson. Thank you. Yes. Clive Anderson is the host. And yeah, so I, I remember seeing, I remember seeing the, the British version met many years before the, the, the U S version and, and some of the regulars from the, some of the regulars from the British version would occasionally show up here in, in the States, but you had like Tony Slattery showing up all the time on the British version. There was Stephen Fry (laughs) at least once. As you know, some some luminaries of of British comedy showing up. Tony Tony Slattery, um, who famously for he was he was on something like five episodes, six episodes in one season, and he did a bit that went over all five episodes, <laughs> and the bit was that he only did the same character in every single one. So that is- no, no matter what happened, he was playing the exact same guy. That that is an impressive commitment to a bit. I gotta, I gotta, uh, I gotta tell you, especially in improv, to just be willing to completely throw a monkey wrench into into, into I, everyone else's improvisation and and commit to being the same guy every time is impressive. I always felt like that bit in the office about Michael Scott always saying he had a gun was a homage to that. Like, <laughs> he always does the same thing. I was like. 
that's that's what Tony Slattery did for an entire season. No matter what happened, he was just this happy-go-lucky, gruff guy. And <laughs> what, what are we going to do? Well, you're meant to be the surgeon. Don't worry about it. <laughs> hey, we'll just run with the roll with the punches, man. <laughs> it's just it's good. That that is uh, again that is a a brilliant. To, to go off on a, a side tangent here, I've been lucky enough to see living near Los Angeles as I do, being able to go up and see some really gifted, um, brilliant comic actors do just kind of like stuff to keep themselves entertained, you know, between big jobs. And so you can go and see people like Mary Holland and Jason Manzukis and um, uh, Lauren Paul Lapkus Shear. do Paul yeah. Shear do just do improv in, in LA and, seeing improv actors who are good enough at it that they will mess with each other is a true delight. De- like deliberately throwing something out where the other person does not know how to react and then just kind of trying to run with that is some of the funniest stuff I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. It sounds brilliant. It, it, it is, it is a true, a true delight. And again, one of those, like it can only happen within that moment. It's, it's not something that's ever going to be recorded. It's not like, you know, major works by these guys. It's essentially just them jamming like musicians. And and some of it is truly hysterical. The actor I was thinking of who has more of a um, more of a Dante resume is resume is the actress Belinda Belaski, who has been in Piranha, which I, I believe was one of his his early films, uh, The Howling, Gremlins, Explorers. Amazon Women on the Moon, Gremlins 2, The New Batch, Matinee. So basically, if Dante has something to do with the small soldiers, if Dante has something to do with it, this woman is appearing in it, it seems. Oh, so I don't... She, I, she, she must be the mom in Explorers. She's credited only as voice, which leads me to believe that it may be like a voice on the radio or a voice on the television or something. Yeah, or she could be the voice of the alien ship. Voice of the that also very possibly yeah wow it has been a long time since I've seen that movie I, Explorers, that, that might uh, be it holds up holds up that might be worth a rewatch for me it's been a very very long time I loved it a lot as a kid I watched that with a bunch of students I'm I'm a, a physics teacher a science teacher and I got to the end of a section I was sitting around and I didn't want to be given I was I actually I'd given a test and I was giving back the results and we still had an hour and forty five minutes left on on the day and I went. I was trolling a movie. I found a copy of Explorers on DVD in one of my presses down the back of the room. It wasn't mine. Threw it on, and uh, every single one of them enjoyed it, including myself. So yeah, holds up. I think that that might yeah might be it, it will be interesting. I I have a um I have a stepdaughter whose whose uh in, awareness of and interest in films from this area is somewhat era is somewhat limited. So. It would be interesting to see what she makes of it and also what just looking I've got the preview playing here in the background and the the uh, the imagery that is so like um, film for young adults 1980s that was has been more or left more or less lifted wholesale for things like Stranger Things is is uh, just off the charts in this in this brief trailer. <laughs> just the shot of leaves blowing past a bicycle. It's suddenly like. The, the nostalgia is perhaps lethal. I may not, I may not survive this experience. <laughs> but you'll come out a sweeter person on the other side. Perhaps, perhaps. Or more embittered by the passage of time. We'll see. <laughs> All 
right. Do we have anything more that we want to say about Critics Corner before we, we bring this episode to a close? I imagine if I'd watched the entire thing, that this might work better as a brief interlude. And then the callback to the second episode we're going to be on in a couple of weeks might be stronger, as in there aren't a lot of jokes in this particular section, but then the second section is 100% jokes about the same people. Right. This so, place is a setup for that. The high blood pressure. True. The lack of exercise. Calm, uh-huh. calm the down. Bad diet. Of course. But, By the time he finally has his heart attack in front of the TV, big deal. Heart attack. Such a mundane. A heart attack. There could have been. Wait, so talking a heart attack. Yes, I see. Wouldn't it have been more dramatic if let's say he'd fallen down an elevator you know shaft? What really should have happened. He what? should have died years earlier. True. Harvey. Maybe in a submarine accident. Harvey. It was just a terribly wasted life. Oh Possibly a giant Harvey. squid. Something to add a little science fiction to it. It's tragic waste, but who cares? For that. And that's why if the previous sex segment in the movie was itself particularly funny, this can be a cool down. Um, I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a wrestling fan, but they talk about this all the time, that after a particularly exciting match, you then have to program a less than exciting one so that the crowd can calm down to be, get ready for the next big thing. Sure, you so, don't want it to be going at 100% all the time. You need moments of exactly, uh, yeah, downshifting. That makes sense. Yeah, and then this, so the lack of jokes in this, and there, there are a couple of subtle little jokes, but the lack of jokes here to then hit the crescendo of, there must be, like, I mean, it's almost a Zaz production later on. Right. Um, airplane level here, well, maybe, it's okay. <laughs> Let's not go too far, Ollie. Um <laughs> I get where you're coming from. The number of jokes, yeah. The number of jokes is, the hit rate is not necessarily great, but the number of jokes in the second segment that we're going to talk about is very impressive. Yes, absolutely. And that this does play well as a, as a a setup for that, which uh, is as good a place as any to, to bring this to an end. Uh, The one thing I did want to add before we, we close out the discussion of this segment is this is perhaps one of the ugliest living rooms in the history of cinema. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's really grim. 100% correct. It is really grim. Uh, so His Ollie chair Baker, doesn't even look comfortable. No, it really doesn't. It, it all looks, and I just wonder, like, I was alive during that time. Was everything really that ugly, or was it simply just art directed to be particularly dismal? I was guy? alive I, in those times. Did everything have carpet on it? I don't remember carpet on walls and carpet on... Like, the chair he sits into looks like it's got carpet on it. Yeah. Everything everything is covered with this layer of, of brown and carpeting and, and wood paneling and fake leather. And, yeah, it's... it's uh, it's gnarly looking, man. And I just, I, I, again, I can't remember if things were really that bad or, or if they went out of their way to give this guy a particularly ugly living room. I'm going to, just for my own sanity, I'm going to go with the latter. I'm going to presume that <laughs> this, this was intended to look, look really bad because accepting the other option that things really were that ugly and that's just seared into my brain and I don't remember it is, is a, a traumatizing idea. So, um, Ollie, do you have anything that you would particularly like to plug or or um, draw attention to? I just recently joined on to be a, um, a co-host of a podcast called Judging Book Covers. Um, the two main hosts are far more engaging and entertaining than I am. I have no idea why they asked me, but um, Meg Griffin and 
Stephanie Cortez have both been guests on multiple Darren Husted related uh, media projects. But um, yeah, so if you ever want to listen to me talk about books and adaptations of books to TV, in particular, The Wheel of Time is currently on Prime. And, you know, I've got some thoughts to share if anyone wants to come and listen to that. So look up Judging Book Covers and yeah, I think it, I think it'll be a good time for you. That sounds fantastic. I will be listening. Thank you. And uh, if you want to follow what's going on with this podcast, uh, the Twitter is at A-W-O-T-M-P, Amazon Women on the Moon podcast in, in initialisms. Uh, if you want to hear me yammer on about stuff, I did uh, guest host Darren's uh, Track by Track podcast, uh, going through every track on Captain Beefheart, the Magic Band's album Trout Mask Replica. That's about a year old now, but those episodes are all out there if you want to check them out. Uh, Ollie, thank you so much for your time in, in discussing in discussing this very unique book. Oh, it was an absolute And thank you so much for listening. Here, man!